0: Good morning. Uh, if you can turn with me to your Bibles or on uh, page eight of your bulletin, I'm going to read together our passage this morning, which comes from Matthew 26:47 to uh, 56. While, Je- While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of, of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts Uh, teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Amen. This word of God. Good morning. Welcome to Metro. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, Um, and if you're new or you're visiting, we thank you for coming. Uh, Thank you for uh, taking the risk on us. Um, I have the privilege of, uh, we've been going through a A sermon series for the past few weeks on Lent. And um, we're tracking the life of Jesus, the passion of Jesus, up until Easter Sunday. And I have the privilege of preaching this sermon the day after a retreat. Two reasons why that is awesome. One, our speaker there was really good. And uh, secondly, some of you guys have had less than five hours of sleep. So if you're tired, I understand. I won't be angry if you fall asleep, but I will be disappointed. <clears throat> it, it was a great time. It was a, it was a wonderful time, and we uh, really had uh, just a sweet, warm time together. So if you give me an hour of your time, I'm just kidding, just 30 minutes of your time, uh, we're going to get on our way. Betrayal is at the heart of the human condition. It's in almost every single good story. Lion King. You got Scar. Why is that funny? You got Scar. You got Scar taking on Mufasa. Scar wanted the crown. He wanted the kingdom. But he let Mufasa die and betrayed him. If you look at Scar today, he still gives me the creeps. He's a really scary-looking villain. The gladiator. You got Commodus. He was, he was upset that the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, loved Maximus more than he loved him. He wanted to be the next emperor, so what did he do? He killed his father. Star Wars. Obi-Wan Kenobi poured out his heart and soul into training Anakin Skywalker be- to be the next defender of justice, to keep the balance in the force. But instead he becomes the most feared villain, the most iconic villain in all the world, Darth Vader. So why is the theme of betrayal so common in good stories? And it's because betrayal gets at the heart of the emotion of who we are. It's so deeply embedded in the human heart that it allows everyone to relate to the experience. In our passage today, we're probably told of the, <clears throat> one of the most widely known stories of betrayal in this world. The story of Jesus' betrayal. So to help you navigate through this, uh, we're going to be taking a closer look into the three main characters of the story. Uh, And we're going to understand through them the cause, the effects of betrayal in their life and in ours. So the first point, Judas the betrayer. The second, Peter the betrayer. And lastly, Jesus the betrayed. So Judas the betrayer, uh, the antagonist of the story or the bad guy. And in the Bible, there isn't much told about Judas Iscariot. And there's a lot, Judas was actually a pretty common name back in the day, so there was actually another disciple named Judas, the son of James, so we can't confuse those two people. But here's what we know about Judas Iscariot. One, and this is probably the most obvious, is that he was one of the twelve disciples. And this can be over, easily overlooked, but it's actually very important in light of his betrayal. It's shocking. As one of the 12 disciples, Judas did everything with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He slept alongside of him. He listened to his teachings, listened to what he said to the crowds. And most of all, he saw the unbelievable miracles that Jesus had done in the flesh. He saw Jesus bringing sight to the blind, healing healing the lame to walk. He saw Jesus feeding Thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and fish. He saw him walking on water, and he even raised someone from the dead. He saw these things with his two eyes. Yet, at the end of it all, he did not believe. And I'm sure before he uh, came to be a disciple, he heard people all over town talking about this Jesus, this Jesus who who did this, who did that, who proclaimed to be the Savior of the world, who healed people, who was doing amazing things. And what did he probably say? Like the many of us, I got to see it to believe it. But he saw it. He saw all of it. Yet he did not believe. He was not convinced. So what does this tell us? It tells us that more than having to see it to believe it, there's something much deeper in the human heart that keeps us from believing. Inherently, we do not want to believe. From the the day of our birth, every single human being is born a natural skeptic. In fact, I think we have a hard time believing anything. I have a friend who can do amazing card tricks. He came over my house one time and we were sitting in my living room he pulled out a deck of cards, and he said, pick a card. So I picked a card. It was the king of diamonds. He shuffled the deck. I put the card back in. He shuffled it again, and then he pulled, put the cards back in the box. And this is where it gets kind of wild. He then threw the box of cards across the room, and it hit a window, a closed window, and they fell to the ground just like any box of cards would do. But then he told me to pull up the shades of that window. And I pulled up the shades. And on the outside of the window, sticking up, was my card. The King of Diamonds. This is a true story. (laughs) What did I tell him to do? I told him to get out of my house. (laughs) That guy is the devil. I told him to get out of my house. I just couldn't believe it. I told him, "Dude, I can't believe you spent the time before you walked into my house to stick that card out there. I can't believe you did that." Naturally, we have a hard time believing anything. You really do. Many of you might be struggling with skepticism and unbelief in Christianity. And I'm here to tell you that you're not alone. It's actually what comes natural to us. Even Jesus' disciples couldn't help but doubt. In fact, their coming to faith was a miracle. Our coming to faith is a miracle. The second thing about Judas that we know is that he was a carrier of the disciples' money bag. And according to John, the Gospel of John, while the disciples were eating, a woman came and anointed Jesus' feet with a very expensive perfume. John tells us that Judas Iscariot said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John then said that Judas didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but he said it because he was a thief. And being in charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. The disciples, they didn't have any pockets, they didn't have any wallets back in the day, so they had a shared money bag and they had Judas take care of it, to keep track of it. And here's what we're told in the story about Judas Iscariot, that he was a thief, he was dishonest, he was greedy And he had a problem with money. And we see this most clearly when he came to set up the whole betrayal. He went to the chief priests, the the ones who wanted to kill Jesus, and he made a deal to deliver Jesus over to him for 30 pieces of silver. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Satan entered into Judas, which led him to sell Jesus out. And we can say that Satan was the force behind Judas' betrayal, but we have to understand how Satan works. Satan doesn't place new desires or temptations in our hearts, but rather he uses already existing idols and evils in our hearts. He inflames and he stirs up those things that are already there. For Judas, he inflamed his love for money and greed, which led him to betray Jesus. So let me take a step back for a second. What is betrayal? Why do we betray? And on the surface, it's disloyalty. And there are many reasons for betrayal, but if you really distill it down even further, betrayal is saying, you are not enough. Your love, your friendship, what you're offering me is no longer enough. It no longer satisfies. I want more. It's saying my time, my love, my affections can be spent better elsewhere, and I'm not able to get what I want from you anymore. So I'm moving on. I'm willing to put everything on the table to risk all of all the all the relationships that we have because I think whatever I'm going to get is more valuable than this was. And the most uh, the best example of this is the most intimate relationship we have in the human life, marriage. Betrayal in marriage happens when one spouse essentially says to the other, you are, no, you are no longer enough. Your love, your affection no longer satisfies me. I want more. And mother, that encounter lasts for 10 seconds or 30 minutes or a span of years, that message that is given through the acts of cheating and unfaithfulness, it all says you are not enough. And unfaithfulness includes much more than common acts of adultery. It includes lusting, fantasizing after others, pornography, giving yourself emotionally to another. All of these acts are saying to your spouse, you are not enough. Betrayal. Betrayal in friendships are also very devastating. I went on Pinterest. Yes, I have a Pinterest. And typed in betrayal in friendship. And... There are some intense quotes regarding betrayal, but they look really nice because it's on Pinterest. (laughs) As we get older, we don't lose friends. We just find out who the real ones are. Better to have an enemy who slaps you in the face than a friend who stabs you in the back. Breaking someone's trust is like crumpling up a perfect piece of paper. You can smooth it over, but it's never going to be the same. The saddest, this, this is like the deepest one, the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. These are deep hurts behind whoever made these quotes. Probably like 15-year-old girls. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why do we do it? Betrayal, we betray friends for other relationships because we're no longer getting what we want from them. We can gain more from someone else or something else. We talk behind their backs because we want the approval of others. The person's friendship and approval, they're, not, they're, not, they're no longer enough. We sell out others so that we can gain our reputation and get in with a certain group of more desirable friends. Betrayal happens in so many ways because we're selfish. In Judas's case, personal gain and wealth were, watch, were worth much more to him than his relationship with Jesus. The betrayal of Jesus exposed Judas for who he really was. It exposed his character. Judas betrayed him with a kiss, and the kiss was a sign of intimacy, of friendship, and even reverence. For Judas, the kiss was the dagger that he put into Jesus' back. It was a mocking way. He mocked him, and it was a very calculated way of doing it. And as we're hearing these quotes and stories about betrayal, I'm sure a lot of us are thinking, maybe all of us are thinking, you know, I'm not capable of doing this. I'm not a betrayer. I've been betrayed, but I would never do that. But the truth is, if you were really honest with yourself, if you look deep inside maybe even not that deep, I think you would agree we are all natural betrayers. We're professionals at it. At the center of our hearts, in the very core, you'd find a root, a root so deeply entwined and embedded into our lives that it can be traced back into everything that we do. And that root is selfishness. And you don't have to think about it for very long to know that it's true. Everything that comes out of your mouth It revolves around improving our likability and standing or protecting ourselves. All of our actions are geared towards loving self. Even when we do something seemingly selfish, like give to the poor or give offering to the church or volunteering, we're really doing it to make ourselves feel good. I can go on and on about this because I'm the same way. We're all the same way. And when we live life this way, we're more likely to betray whether it's through invisible ways or through visible ways, whether it's through sm- something big like stabbing someone in the back or something small like spreading a little gossip. We're all natural betrayers. Why? Because we're just looking out for number one. And this is what Judas did to Jesus. Can you blame him? Just like Judas, we're all natural betrayers and that leads us to our next character, Peter. Peter is good guy. In the story, we're told of one of Jesus' disciples who drew his sword out and cut off the servant's high priest, the high priest's servant's ear. Uh, In the Gospel of John, it, it reveals that the disciple who did this was Peter. And in contrast to Judas, there are many stories regarding Peter. Uh, we see all kinds of details about him. We see that he is a very emotional guy. He often got caught up in the moment, acting out of his, emo- his own emotions rather than his head. He dives headfirst into everything. His life motto would probably be, go big or go home. He's a lovable guy because I think all of us, or many of us, can relate to him. We probably see ourselves in him. And uh, many things that he did required great acts of faith. Peter was first disciple that Jesus ever called. His first encounter with Jesus ended with him on the floor at the feet of Jesus saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When Jesus walked on water to his disciples, Peter was the only one to jump out of the boat and try to walk to him on water. Peter was the one who confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in return, Jesus proclaimed that he would be the foundation on which the church would be built and that he would have the keys to the kingdom of God. He did these things, but he did a lot of stupid things as well. Uh, When Jesus told his disciples that he would be betrayed, he would be killed, and that he would rise on the third day, Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. Peter scolded Jesus, and this was right after he confessed that Jesus was the Son of God. What did Jesus respond by saying? Get behind me, Satan. When Jesus humbled himself and began began washing the feet of the disciples, Peter was the one who said, he probably started taking off his clothes, and he's like, you might as well just wash my whole body, Jesus. That's, That's some stupid stuff, but he did it. But one of the major things we see about Peter was his pride. He wanted to be the main character of the story. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night, as he was foretelling what was going to happen later on uh, with his betrayal. And Peter responds by saying, though they all, all the other disciples will fall away because of you, I, I will not fall away. And this is uh, where Jesus tells Peter, not only will you fall away, you're going to deny me three times. And what did he say? Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Some blinding pride, almost bordering on arrogance. Can you imagine how annoying this guy must have been if you were one of his disciples? Probably like, dude, relax. You don't have to be the first one to do everything, man. Just chill out. Then we come to the betrayal. And the first detail we read about him was that he has a sword. And Peter was a fisherman, so he had no reason to carry a sword. And Jesus told his disciples not to carry anything of value. But anyways, he still had a sword. And it's obvious that he had no idea how to use it because the only way you can cut off someone's ear is if you were highly skilled or you meant to hit something else and you accidentally cut off the ear. And that's what he did. Jesus did say earlier that uh, they were going to fall away So, uh, they probably thought that they were going to go into battle. However, the situation didn't go down the way he thought it would. So seeing so seeing Peter, seeing how Peter rebuked Jesus when uh, he talked about his betrayal, Peter had a very different expectation of Jesus. He had a different expectation of who he was, what he was going to do, why he came. And like many of the Jews, he believed that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come and defeat the oppressive Roman Empire and bring his people victory. But that wasn't the plan. He came in riding into, the, uh, uh, riding into Jerusalem, the holy city, not on an impressive war stallion, but he came riding on a lowly donkey. This wasn't the Messiah that Peter wanted. So when things uh, really started going south in our passes today, he acted, he was probably thinking, I need to save Jesus. And this was, this was his moment to shine. This was his moment to be the hero. He was going to be bold. So he pulled out his sword and cut off the servant's ear. This betrayal exposed Peter for who he really was. It exposed his character. And although his act of betrayal wasn't as obvious as Judas's, Peter's act of betrayal was not with a kiss, but it was with a sword. Jesus, would, Jesus was on a mission, but Peter was doing all that he could to sabotage that mission. He was selfless, self-absorbed. His desire was to be the hero. He wanted to be the main character of the story. He had expectations of who Jesus was and what he wanted him to do. You know, our approach to God is much like that of Peter's. We come to him feeling entitled with certain expectations and goals. We say, Jesus, now that I've come to you and been following you and been doing all these things, I've been going to church, I've been reading the Bible, now where is that future spouse that I've been asking you about for so long? Or what about that job job promotion or that job opportunity that finally opened up? We parents come with certain expectations to God thinking that if we do this or that with our children or with our lives or raise them in a certain way, our children would be obedient, gentle, kind, athletic, gifted, smart, or simply just manageable. Why aren't they turning out the way they're supposed to? I'm doing all that I can for you, God. The moment these expectations uh, don't go according to our plan, we say, no, 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 God, God, no, no, no. It's, it's, not, no, it's not supposed to go this way. Let, let's try it. Let's try it my way. In the light of the events in the news about mothers coming up with crazy elaborate schemes to cheat their children into getting into Ivy Leagues, it was on the news, uh, there was an article written in the New York Times Um, that as a parent I found pretty interesting. It talked about how parenting styles have changed in the past generation. The parenting style uh, known as helicopter parents uh, uh, was very popular in the past generation. As you can picture, uh, helicopter parents are so named because they're like helicopters. They hover overhead, overseeing every aspect of their child's lives constantly. However, this article points out that Parents today are no longer helicopter parents, but now snowplow parents. And like snowplows, parents become machines chugging ahead, clearing any obstacle in their child's path to success so that they don't have to encounter failure, frustration, or lost opportunities in the future. And I don't know if this is true of our generation, but what I do know is oftentimes we shrink the God of the universe to become our personal snowplows. We want Him to, uh, we expect Him to clear out all the obstacles in our way for our success so we don't encounter uh, failures, frustrations, or lost opportunities. And when He doesn't, we want out. God is no longer the creator of the universe or the king over all the world, but He becomes a personal assistant and it's not a personal relationship, it's a business relationship. And that's another form of betrayal. It's portraying God by belittling who He is. It's saying, God, I want you for things. I don't want you. And how is that not betrayal? Like Peter and all the disciples, when things aren't going the way we expect, we want out and we're going to take matters into our own hands. And this brings us to our last character, Jesus, the betrayed. So from the first two points, we see that everyone abandoned and betrayed Jesus. Those who were closest to him, the same ones who said, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Everyone betrayed Jesus. And if we read through the Gospel of Matthew, we see that Jesus knew what would happen all along. He knew that his disciples would leave him. So why did he do it? If you look at the character of Jesus in this encounter, we see an odd and mysterious calm and poise during such a chaotic situation. As Jesus was still talking to the disciples, a massive crowd of soldiers came and surrounded him. His betrayer, one of his beloved companions who sold him out for a few pieces of silver, walks up to his face and kisses him in the cheek in mockery. And Jesus simply says, friend, do what you came for. Then the soldiers grab him and seize him like a criminal. Then things really get out of hand when Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off a servant's ear uh, like they're about to go to war, and Jesus responds to Peter by saying, put that sword back in its place. And even takes the time to humble Peter, saying, do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus here is saying to Peter, Peter, do you think, does it look like I need saving? If I did, do you think my father would send me 12 measly, scrawny little disciples to save me? No, he would send me more than 12 legions of angels. Put that sword away before you hurt yourself. But then he says something very interesting. How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way. And then he says it again in verse 56, but all this has taken place in the writings of the prophets that the prophets might be fulfilled. The reason why Jesus has this mysterious sense of calm and poison, such a chaotic situation, is because his idea of fulfillment. He knew that he was going to be betrayed by Judas, by Peter, and all those closest to him, yet he allowed it to happen. Why? Why? because it was his mission all along. It was what he came into this world to do. Jesus said in Matthew 20, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The very reason for his life was so that he can give it up for the sake of others. And when Jesus speaks of this fulfillment, he's referring to the passage in the Old Testament written hundreds of years before he was born as a baby, like Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and held, we held him in low esteem, Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. In this passage, Isaiah speaks of a coming servant, a man who would be rejected, who would be betrayed, who would be despised, a man who would be given the name the man of sorrows because he would take upon himself the punishment, the pain, the suffering and the sorrows of this world and by bearing it all, he would come to heal the world. And it's no secret that we live in a broken and messed up world. We can see that in our own lives, both from being betrayed and betraying others. Our hearts are constantly hostile towards God and we seek to betray Him constantly. How can God allow His enemies to sell Him out for far lesser things than He is worth? Yet His plan was not with a sword, but a man. This man of sorrows who would take on the betrayal of all those closest to Him, he would be betrayed both figuratively and literally stabbed in the back. This man, Jesus, who was, the only, who was God's only begotten son, the one to bear the punishment and suffering of the father that you and I deserved, was his own son. I can't imagine me giving up my son for any of you guys. I love you guys, but I love my son more. And I can't imagine that. Jesus knew it all along. He knew that he would have to bear this burden before he came into this world, but he still entered into it. Yet he did not live life in bitterness and pride. In fact, the way that he approached his relationships was radically different from the way that we do. Rather than use others at his disposal to boost his reputation when the the reputation and dignity of others were being torn down, He took it upon Himself. When He saw Judas shame Mary as she anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, He said, leave her alone, for she has done something beautiful for Me. He laid down His life for His friends to the fullest. He gave all of Himself for them. Yet, as we see in our passage the the very same friends who betrayed him, the very same friends who pledged their allegiance to him left him and deserted him, betrayed. But the betrayal of his friends was not even his deepest wound. It was the betrayal, being completely forsaken by his own father on the cross. Up until the cross, he kept... His poise and calm. Yet on the cross, He became undone. When Christ was on the cross, He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When someone that we love betrays us, we go up to them and ask, Why? Why? Why did you do it? Why did you betray me? Jesus was forsaken by the one He loved. The most intimate relationship that we have today was modeled after that relationship, the ultimate relationship between Jesus Christ, the Son, and His Father. So can you imagine the depth of love, of cherishment in that relationship? Yet on the cross, Christ lost it all. Why? Why? Because God the Father saw that our relationship with Him, you and me, was worth more than the life of His own Son. The craziest part of it all was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He agreed. He fully submitted to the will of the Father, and the Father's will was for Him to be crushed so that we would have life. He could have easily said no. He could have easily walked away. And when it got hard, he could have said, I want out. I'm not gaining anything out of this relationship, only suffering hardship and betrayal. Yet he fully submitted. He was taken captive. He was bound in chains. He was betrayed by everyone around him and even his own father in order for us to experience and obtain forever the love of God the Father. Hebrews 12 tells us that he did it for the joy set before him. And we learned at this past retreat that we were that joy. We were that joy. We were the reason why he did it. He took on that pain. He remained faithful, faithful until the end, not only to his father, but to us. And friends, this is the gospel. Some of us have been hurt, broken, and devastated by betrayal. And you may be, even be dealing with the repercussions today. You may be, you're probably going to deal with it for the rest of your life. But I pray that even in the midst of this brokenness, this hurt, and this heartache, you can be reminded that because Jesus took on the ultimate forsakenness and betrayal, you will never lose the most precious, the most intimate, the most joy-giving love that can be offered to us in this life and the next, the love of your Creator. God, the Father, who knows your weaknesses, who knows your fears, who knows your insecurities, but still loves you more than you can ever hope. Equipped with this love, there is no betrayal that will ever destroy us. There is no betrayal that will ever ruin us so that we can graciously love others again, so that we can go and trust others again. Betrayal is saying your life for mine, your reputation for mine. The opposite of betrayal is self-giving, my life for yours, my reputation for yours. And that's exactly what Christ did for you and me. He said my suffering for your flourishing, my pain for your growth, my death for your life, my betrayal for your unconditional love. So how can we live in light of that? We can respond by doing the same for others. Rather than wanting out when, we, when those around us suffer, armed and covered now with this armor, this self-giving love of God, we can enter and bear the sufferings of other people. We can move from a business relationship to a personal relationship, from a life-taking relationship to a life-giving one. And let me end by saying this. As we looked at, at both the life of Judas and Peter, both of them had expectations coming into uh, their relationship with Jesus. Both of them fell hard. Both of them betrayed Jesus. Yet Judas's life ended in hopelessness by killing himself, while Peter would become the foundation that Christ would build his church upon. So the big question is, what is the difference between the two? Why did one live and one die? The difference is that while Judas ran from Jesus, Peter ran to Jesus. After, three days after Jesus' betrayal, on the day of Jesus' resurrection, Mary came to Jesus' tomb and he saw that the tomb was rolled away. So she went to Peter and the disciples and told them, the stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. So what did Peter do? He ran. He ran to the tomb of Jesus. Why? Because an empty tomb meant that the Savior of the world was right, that He was victorious over our sin, that He truly did come to pay it all. to To Peter, an empty tomb meant that his betrayal of Jesus, the guilt and shame of his failures, would no longer keep him from running back to his Savior, Jesus Christ. So he ran. He ran to the tomb, and behold, it was empty. He was free. The empty tomb today means that your failures, your brokenness, your addictions, your pride, your guilt... Your shame, even your unbelief would no longer have power over you, but it means that you are free and it has been bought and secured. During our life, we're going to betray Jesus. Repeatedly. We're going to keep doing it. Yet even then, I want to encourage you, don't try to cover it up. Don't try to pay it back. Don't run from him, but run to him knowing that even though He is fully aware that you will betray Him, He will remain faithful, just as He did on the cross. And by cherishing His faithfulness to us, how can we not respond to Him in love and in praise? Friends, run to Jesus. Let's pray.